0: ...kind of natural disaster. And again, Americans are being urged to pray. Louisiana Governor Kathleen Blanco, about uh, a week and a half ago on Wednesday, as the floodwaters were rising, ordered a complete evacuation of the city, and then she asked for a statewide day of prayer. She said, as we face the devastation wrought by Katrina and as we search for those in need... As we comfort those in pain, and as we begin the long task of rebuilding, we turn to God for strength, hope, and comfort. I am asking that all of Louisiana take some time Wednesday to pray. Now, it's hard to imagine that anyone would not vocally support the governor's call to prayer. But when it comes to actually praying, getting about the business of prayer as the governor requested, Many people are content to simply feel sorrow and compassion, give some money, maybe attend church, go through some other kind of religious exercise, but easily overlook the kind of actual praying that she requested. Others want to pray, but resort to standardized religious prayers they learned as a child or in some kind of religious class and just keep reciting these things over and over again with not much thought or heart put into the prayer itself. Still others feel moved to pray, but struggle with where to begin or what exactly to say to a God that seems strange and distant and almost unknowable. How can we act on what most of us purposed to do? To pray to God on behalf of those around us who have suffered so much. How exactly are we to approach and communicate with our God and Creator? How can we represent the needs of our fellow Americans before Him? Indeed, how can we represent or bring before Him our own needs? Friends, this is not just a problem for non-religious people. It's a problem for religious, even deeply religious people as well. In fact, even the disciples of Jesus, having spent a lot of time with Him, after watching Jesus off in a certain place, perhaps a few, 10, 15, 30 feet away, 100 feet away, there was Jesus, perhaps on His knees, praying to the Father. And they saw Him praying and they said, Oh Lord, would You teach us to pray? Would you teach us to pray, Lord? What Jesus taught them is the prayer that we have come to call the Lord's Prayer. I would guess that the majority of Americans know part or all of this prayer. Some may even be reciting it over and over again to God, not knowing exactly what else to say. It is a prayer we have we have read together in a responsive reading this morning. It's a prayer that Colleen beautifully sang for us just a moment ago. It's a prayer that I have written out for you on your, your note sheet this morning. And it's taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. It is not a prayer Jesus was calling upon us to recite over and over and over again. It is not really the Lord's prayer, but a model prayer designed to teach His disciples and to teach us how to pray. It's not the Lord's prayer because He could not have prayed this prayer. You see, He was sinless. And so He would not have prayed, Father, forgive me for the sins that I've committed. Forgive me my debts. As I forgive my debtors. He forgave others, but he had no sins to confess. This was not his prayer that he prayed, it was a model prayer that he gave to his disciples and to you and I this morning as we desire to follow him. We might better call it the disciples' prayer. It's a moving prayer with unforgettable words. But often when you hear people reciting it, and we know it from heart, you want to go up and say, do you know what you're reciting? Have you ever thought about those words, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven? Have you ever thought about those things? I dare say that in most cases, people probably haven't given it a lot of thought. Jesus intended it to be a model for us. A model around which we could organize our thoughts, our words, our praise, and our request into a prayer that would indeed be pleasing to our God. I'm not saying that God doesn't respond to other prayers, but this is the prayer that is a Model for the kind of prayer that particularly pleases him. A prayer that he delights in hearing. So I would like to invite you this morning to journey with me through this prayer. And the first thing that you and I will notice as we go through this prayer together is that it's in the midst of a very, of another very famous portion of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, from chapter 5 to chapter 7 in Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount was a sermon that Jesus delivered primarily to his 12 disciples and some of the other disciples that were around him. But he had delivered it in the, in the presence of a large audience so they could listen in. And he was, in this sermon, his primary point was he wanted to talk to them about righteous living as opposed to the mistaken notions of righteousness in their own religious world there was a lot of ideas well how to live in a right way and how to live a life that is pleasing to god and jesus is saying if you want to be my followers what you've seen and heard from others will not be sufficient your righteousness will need to exceed theirs and i want to set you straight as to what i mean now some of the mistaken notions that people have about righteousness Or doing what is right before God involved prayer in particular. And so Jesus introduces his instruction on prayer to his disciples by by denouncing what so often passes for the right way to pray. And the bottom line is, you really don't want, in most cases, to follow religious people if you want to learn to pray in a way that pleases God. If you want to learn to pray so that your prayer is especially pleasing to Him, Jesus says, Do not follow particularly two types of religious people. Religious hypocrites and the religious heathen. Now I'd like for you to read with me as we look first of all at the religious hypocrite. And we read in Matthew chapter 6 verse 5, And when you pray you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. The most ostentatious leaders of all were the Pharisees. Most of us have heard of them. They were masters at using God to win the praise and the admonition of men and women. Jesus called them hypocrites which was a term used in the theater of that day, meaning to speak from under a mask. In other words, you hold up a mask of piety, you play the role of the pious, holy one that can really pray for God and for God's people, or to God and for God's people. And the Pharisees were just masters of that. Jesus called them hypocrites because they held up before men the mask of piety of religious conviction, of devotion to God. But inside, Jesus would call them and later on, they were whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones, wicked and corrupt. That's what was underneath the mask of so many of them. Their hypocrisy was especially prevalent when they prayed. They did not pray sincerely. They did not... Pray but to build themselves up before men. Prayer to a Pharisee was, a, was of no use, no value. If it would be alone or in a small group, why waste your time? You want a large number of people to impress them with your piety and your, the length of your prayers and your oratorical skills and you can raise your hands. And, oh, God. That's the kind of thing you hear today. They stood there resplendent in their robes, sounding as religious and as humble as possible, all to be noticed and approved by the crowd. Oh God. For those who might be tempted to follow and model their prayer life after them, Jesus said, Remember, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They got the approval of the, and the congratulations of men. That's what they were after. They have their reward. But they have no reward from God. He did not approve of their prayers and does not approve of their prayers. They did not even have the joy of a relationship with God. Religious hypocrisy is most evident in prayer. When we pray to be heard by men and to win the approval of men, we have failed miserably. Then in what ways can we avoid such hypocrisy in our own prayers? Jesus continues in verse 6 of chapter 6. When you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, pray to your father who is in a secret place, who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is particularly dwelling on the idea that we have to be in a room with the door shut as much as he's dwelling on the idea that when we pray, it needs to be private and it needs to be personal. It's between a child and his father. And when I wanted to talk to my father about something in life on a serious level, I wanted his undivided attention and I wanted it to be without my sister listening in, particularly. It was between us. As one person observed, when two people are in love, it requires privacy to properly communicate. One prying eye can spoil the communication. As soon as we become conscious of an observer, we begin to lose consciousness of the Father. Now, many are saying, well, what about when we pray in church like we did this morning? But in that context, we're representing this body as one body before God. And that's what not not what Jesus is discussing here. He's actually looking and speaking to the individual. He's talking about our private personal life. The second group we must look out for as a model for prayer are the heathen, the religious heathen. Now, the heathen, the word heathen isn't my word, but it refers to, in that day, in Jesus' day, those who were part of pagan religions. And usually, pagan religions, if you study Greek mythology and Roman mythology and things of that way, I mean, they had a whole consortium of gods. And they would talk to these gods and and these gods were much like men. I mean, they had to get rest, they banqueted, they partied, they, they were off on sexual liaisons, they were involved in all kinds of things. And so the heathen believed that in order to be effective in prayer, the prayer must be lengthy and it must be repetitive. The heathen believed that their gods usually were too involved or too preoccupied or, or too tired to be bothered with them and the requests that they might have for their needs, the needs of mere mortal men. They might be banqueting. They might be pursuing some kind of personal pleasure or just plain sleeping. And so the heathen religious people of Jesus' day would say their prayers over and over and over again so that some time they might just catch their God at home and listening to what they might have to say. You know, when they weren't eating or drinking or playing or sleeping. They might hear. The constant incantations of a, pagan priest in our world today, the prayer wheel of a Tibetan Buddhist, the beads, the constant repetition of ritualistic worship and prayer, even in the Christian church, all falls under the heathen religious practice. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 8, He says, Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. The heathen, they think they will be heard for their many words, but don't be like them because the father knows what you need before you even ask him. Dwight Pentecost, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, made this point. thought it was beautifully put. He says, a faithful father anticipates the needs of his children. An experienced father does not need to be informed what the child needs because he has anticipated the need. Prayer is not designed to inform God what our needs are. As faithful father, he knows. Prayer is designed to let God know that we know our need. And in our need, we trust him to provide. Since God already knows and is willing to meet the need of his children, it is not necessary to inform him with endless repetition. For the purpose of affirming our dependence upon him, we pray and we ask. When my children grew up, I I sort of understood what they needed. When they went off to college and they would call, I knew what they needed. That sounds like mine, but I guess it's not. It's my call signal. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, it's on. It's in there, but it's not coming from that side. But when they were in college, they would call home. And I knew what they needed. It was money. I wanted to hear them say, though, Dad, could you send me some money or I need some help? They didn't need to keep begging me or going over and having some kind of incantation that they would recite over and over again, although it may have sounded like that at times. I didn't want them to utter empty words, or talk idly, or speak nonsense, or speak without thinking. Just to be straightforward and think through what you're going to say. Dad, I, I've i got a, a test coming up. When I need some more help financially, I can't work right now, or whatever, can you send me some money? And it's the same thing with prayer. What this matter with the heathen involves is the heathen doesn't have their brain and gear they're not praying thoughtfully and that's the problem there's not a thoughtful thinking a praying it's a prayer that is just sort of babble it's just going through the motions and Jesus says think don't be like the heathen think when you pray and let me just give you a tip when you pray slow down Don't worry about some dead space in the conversation. I mean, we have to worry about those things on Sunday morning because we're all programmed to think, you know, if there's a dead space, it's a terrible problem. But when you're talking to God in private, it's okay to have a sentence and take a moment, recollect your thoughts and say something again, or maybe if it didn't come out quite right, to repeat it in a different way. You're talking to a real person. You're not going through the motions. Our prayers are never to be ostentatious like the Pharisees, nor are they to be thoughtless repetitions like the heathen. How then are we to pray? How are we to pray so we can converse with the infinite God? How do we pray so that our prayers go beyond the ceiling? Like a rabbi in the tradition of the first century, Jesus in verses 9 to 13 says, gave his disciples a model on which to base their prayers. This isn't a prayer that we're to do the same thing with that he's condemning. This isn't some kind of of prayer that we're to recite over and over and over again without any thought. This is a model. It's a pattern for our own prayers. This is how to pray, Jesus says. This is where you start This is the basics. As one person said, it resembles the beginning scales of a piano teacher sets before a new pupil. Here, A, B, C, D, E, F. Play this. These are the beginning scales. The Lord's Prayer. It serves as a basis for prayer showing us what to pray about. And how our thoughts are to be organized and developed as we pray. Now the prayer is easily divided into two major sections. First, our prayers are to be focused on the Father. And that's verses uh, 9 through uh, 10. And then secondly, our prayers are to be focused on the Father's family. 1st there to be focused on the Father. Secondly, on the Father's family. And may I just suggest that if you would take that outline alone and bring it to your prayers, it will help you a lot. In our home, when we would have a time of prayer around the dinner table or whenever we would pray with the kids, we tried to stress, let's talk, first of all, to God about God. Let's thank Him. Let's praise Him. Let's, let's be involved with what God's involved in from His perspective. And then we can bring forth those things that we have need of or believe we have need of. The prayer can be easily divided into two sections. First, our prayers are to be focused on the Father. And second, our prayers are to be focused on the Father's family. First, our prayers are to be focused on the Father. And as we focus on the Father, there are four concerns that should be at the center of our attention. They're represented by four phrases here. First, our Father in heaven. Second, hallowed be your name. Third, your kingdom come. And fourth, your will be done. Now let's take the first of these and we'll walk through them very quickly. First he says, our Father in heaven. Friends, when he says our Father, that says so much. Remember the prayer that I shared with you last week? The woman that... The imaginary woman who was in the storm, the Katrina Katrina storm, with all the different people around her, they're praying different ways and, you know, reciting prayers from the past and so on. You know, Lord, I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And God is great. God is good. That's what you hear around you. But then here comes this girl. And she is asked to pray by the group because they sense there's something different in her life. And she says, gracious God and Father, our Heavenly Father, right there, speaks volumes. Because to call God Father implies that we have a relationship with Him as a child has to a father. We're His child. And you say, how do you get off speaking so boldly to God to call Him Father? He's our creator. He's the architect of the universe. He put all those stars in the sky. How can you call him father? And I would take you back to John 1:12 where it says that those who believe in him in Jesus Christ God has given them the right, the power to become his children because he's put their life in their his life in their life in their heart, in their being. And the moment we receive his life, what he calls eternal life, we are born again according to the Bible. We become his children. And it's not by virtue of something we do. It's simply a gift that we receive by faith. The next thing he says, our Father in heaven. In heaven. Not only is God intimate with his children and he's close to us personally, He is very separate from our world. He is in a heavenly position, separate, uncontaminated, unpolluted by the sin and the evil in this world. We need to remember that and not treat our relationship to God with contempt or to speak with Him with common terms and Slang and things that we would throw around, remembering that He is indeed separate from us and deserves our respect and our adoration. The next thing we read is He says that we should be focused on or should be a concern of our attention. He says, Hallowed be your name. What's He mean by name? God's name stands for His character. To hallow is an old English term, that an old English word that translated a form of a Greek word that means to set apart, to make holy. The name of God means to, to honor or hallow that name means to revere it or to honor it, to make it special, to set it apart from all else and then fall down and, uh, and, and be in awe of it. It begins in our heart and mind and spreads to our whole person. We sometimes speak of making a name for ourselves. I grew up in a situation like that where we were told that one of the great goals in life is you need to make a name for yourself, which meant in our, my culture, my, my upbringing, it meant that you had to go out and build a reputation, a reputation for honesty, a reputation for integrity, a reputation that would be well-respected by men. Well, friends, God has made a name for Himself in all that He's created and all that He has done. And that name begs for us to stand in awe of Him. And when we pray, it needs to reflect that awe. I think so often when we pray, we forget who we're talking to. Haddon Robinson, a professor of nine at Dallas Seminary, he said this, Sometimes we pray as though God were deaf, that he needed encouragement. At other times we pray as though he were almighty in the sense that he pushed people around at will, as though he were, as though he were too small or lazy or full of himself. At times our prayers flirt with blasphemy and imply a God hardly worth knowing. Our requests may not honor God at all. Sometimes we desire that our own name will be honored, or hallowed. At other times, our prayers reflect names of men and women on earth we honor more than his, the names of our family members and friends. We fear the names of political leaders, employers, or competitors. Compared to the honor we bestow on creatures like ourselves, God's reputation may be an insignificant concern in our prayers. You know, that's, that's so true. People just jump right in and start telling God what they expect or want or what he's supposed to do. Putting the question bluntly, if God answered the prayers you offered this morning, whose name would be exalted? That's a good question. If God answered the prayers that we asked or prayed this morning, whose name would be exalted? His or ours? To ask that the Father's name be hallowed means that we desire his character to be revered. His person to be stood in awe of. But how can we desire to revere a character we know nothing about? How can we stand in awe of a person we have no interest in knowing? When it comes to our being effective in prayer, to me this is the heart of the problem, the heart of the issue. We just don't know what God's like. So no wonder we start our prayers with God give me this, this, and this and that's the end of our prayer. If you say to when my children were younger we would try to emphasize the importance of praying first to God and talking about God's character and thanking Him for things that not only He's done but who He is. But they needed to be taught what He was like. Children need to learn about God not just about that He's the divine genie that comes out of the bottle whenever you rub it and gives you whatever you want. We need to know Him. And therefore, when we pray, His name is not hallowed because we don't know Him. Friends, that's why I believe this church exists. It's why I'm in the pulpit this morning. It's why we have Bible studies. It's why we have Awana. It's why we have Sunday school. All opportunities to learn more about God so we can come to Him and know something about the God that we're praying to and begin to be in awe of His character. It's so, so crucial to effective prayer. The third concern that is to be at the center of our attention is found in the words, Your kingdom come. Most of us, as we reflect upon our world, see a world that is seemingly out of control. We see a world that is in danger of exploding. We see things like what happened at the World Trade Center four years ago. We see tragedies in Britain and Spain. We see men that just, you can read it in their eyes, they're full of hatred. It's everywhere. But when it comes to the world in which we live, and even the world, even the planet seems out of balance. It's not only that the world seems out of control, the planet seems out of balance. And it is. If you read your Bible carefully, you'll find that after the flood, there was this big period of time, after the judgment of the great flood that was on this earth, there was a period of time in which the earth was striving to reach equilibrium. And it reached a measure of equilibrium, but it's never perfectly been in equilibrium since before the flood. And the thoughtful man cries out and says, you know, is this going anywhere, Lord? Mankind seems to be capable of more and more evil, and the world seems to be still pouring forth disasters that take lives and destroy cities. Where's history going? And then Jesus says, this is to be part of your prayer, part of what you consider when you pray is... Your kingdom come, O Lord. We must occupy ourselves with the the Father's coming kingdom. When He shall sum up all things in Jesus Christ. When His Son shall reign forever and ever, as the book of Revelation puts it. King of kings and Lord of lords. A kingdom in which the world will experience perfect peace. Perfect justice. Prosperity. Health. The world, I believe, will also be in perfect equilibrium. And we won't have any more hurricanes or volcanoes or other disasters that destroy and kill so many. Someone will say to me, you have an interpretive problem here, Pastor. How can we Christians pray for God's kingdom to come? I thought the rapture was the next thing to come. Well, the rapture is where Christ comes and gathers His church to meet Him in the air is the next thing on God's calendar. But what happens after that? We come back with Him to this earth. And what does the Bible say? We reign with Him. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. We reign with Him. If you endure with Him, You shall reign with Him. 2 Timothy 2. That's our hope. And so we can pray for God's kingdom to come. What better thing should we be praying for than for God to establish the kingdom through Jesus Christ in which we shall reign as co-heirs with Him. We should be concerned with His coming kingdom. Fourth, and this leads... From the kingdom naturally into this, we should be concerned that his will be done. His will be done. Preoccupation with the kingdom means that we should be preoccupied with God's will. Because that's what characterizes a kingdom. People say, what's a kingdom? Well, you need a king. But then you need people to do what the king says. Only what is happening today is, is that the king is absent, seated at the right hand of God in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, until his enemies be made his footstool. But those who are not his enemies are still invited to be submissive to the king, to do what the king says. Only now it's our choice if we want to obey. It will not be forced upon us as it will in the kingdom. We serve the king because we choose to. And so in our prayers we're not only concerned with the kingdom, we're concerned with the will of God. Which is the fourth thing that is stressed for us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's being done in heaven. Obviously, it's not being done on earth. Many people say, well, why didn't God do this? Or why didn't God do that? And they're blaming God for everything. Friends, if God were fully in charge, in the sense that, He has allowed this world to go on with a measure of rebellion. There wouldn't be all these problems. You say, well, then why didn't he just judge this world? And if he did, friends, we wouldn't be here. So out of his mercy and grace, he's permitted this world to go on for a period of time that is a microsecond in eternity's reckoning. But during that microsecond, it's an opportunity for us to respond to his grace and to become and to get in step with what he's interested in our doing. And that should be at the heart of our prayers. What is the will of God today? First, his will is that the people believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. And that they be born into God's family. This is what God wants done today in this world. He says this in John 6:29. This is the will or work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. That's Jesus Christ. That's one of the primary works today. A second, His will is that we go on and become obedient followers of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, that they become not preoccupied with anything other than His will above all else. It's interesting how Jesus, when He was on this earth, He was with His disciples after, witness, after sharing him the faith with the Samaritan woman, His disciples... They were looking at the village in Samaria that they were going to go look to, sharing these things with that village. And Jesus said to them as they questioned him why he was not eating, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus was consumed with the will of God. And obviously in his prayers, the will of God was what was crucial. He also made it clear to his disciples later on when he met with them in private before his death, He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. And if you ask anything according to my will, it shall be done for you. But the crucial factor in there is, is it according to the will of God? And so when it comes to our prayers, what we're asking in this transitions to the next section of the prayer, whatever we're going to ask of God really needs to be in the context of the will of God. it sets the tone for the second focus in our prayers, and that is to be focused on the Father's family. First, we need to focus on the Father. Second, we need to focus on the Father's family. And as we focus on the Father's family, there are five concerns that should be the center of our attention. The first concern is give us this day our daily bread. And note the plurals here, give us. He's talking here about the people of God collectively. We're not just to be concerned about give me my daily bread today, but give us. We should be concerned about one another. And when he uses the word bread, of course, bread refers to a food that sustains life. And in Bible times, this was the most basic food that met the needs of man. And so in a figurative way, it speaks of, in a larger sense, it refers to all that we must have to live. Martin Luther said this, everything necessary for preservation of this life is bread, including food, a healthy body, good weather, a home, wife, children, good government, and peace. When Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, I think he has in mind Praying for the necessities of life, the basics. And then he uses the word daily. And for years, this word daily bugs scholars because it's the only place in the Bible where the word occurs. Give us this day our daily, whatever that word meant in the language of the New Testament, the Greek language. The only place where it occurred. But then, recent discoveries, they found a housewife's shopping list. and you ladies know what a a shopping list is all about. And the lady had written next to her shopping list the word daily, which probably meant something like enough for the coming day. Enough for the coming day. Give us today bread enough for tomorrow. Give us today necessities of life that will carry us through tomorrow. But in our culture, with all of our refrigerators and and our freezers and our our marvelous technology it seems like we 're so far from the source, so that we don 't think much about the fact that we could be out of food in a day or two, which, if you were living in God, in biblical times, you would not know for sure that you 're going to have a meal in three or four days because it depended on other people at the market providing those things. The same thing's true today for us, but we 're always removed but of course it 's interesting when you have a disaster like they had in in uh in the in the south what did they do to the markets Whoo! they cleaned them out people all of a sudden realize that it's not an endless barrel that it could be that they're going to run out soon another better way to approach that would have been to pray or give me f- bread enough for tomorrow meet my needs if it's clothing a home if it's food i pray you'll meet my need tomorrow and i bet i would guess that a lot of those people that were helped were praying for the Lord to meet those needs tomorrow, and he did. We need to acknowledge that all these things we take for granted come from his hand. At the center, we come now to the second concern that should be the center of our attention under this area of praying and being focused on the Father's family, and that is forgive us our debts. Now, that always has thrown people for a loop, and many translations translate it, forgive us our debtors, but or forgive us our trespasses. But the word actually is the word for debt. He's not speaking here about sin that came between us and God. He is not concerned about our eternal relationship with God. That's not what he's talking about here. He is concerned about our immediate relationship with our Heavenly Father. You see, when we believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior, our sins were removed forever so that our eternal relationship with God is forever secure. Nothing can break it. However, God is also our Heavenly Father and we have entered into a personal relationship with Him as a son or daughter would enter into with her father and mother, with her parents. Now, I know of no parent that would break that relationship if that child disobeyed or did something wrong or even defied their parents, they would say, I no longer regard you as my son or daughter. I'm going to throw you out of the home. But, believe me, as a parent, when a child defies you or does something wrong, it does break the relationship, the fellowship, the intimacy for a while. The father can be hurt by sin that we commit. It won't come between our relationship between. It won't come between our eternal relationship with God, in that we are always secure in the family of God, but on a daily, immediate basis, it can be a hindrance to enjoying that fellowship with God. And that's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about losing our salvation. He's not talking about salvation at all. He's talking about fellowship and intimacy with God. God forgives us. He removes the personal barrier when we confess our sins and we agree with Him that essentially what He calls sin is sin in our life and we say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have been so mean-spirited or I shouldn't have been so selfish or I shouldn't have been, Lord, full of evil thoughts. Forgive me, Father, for that evil thought. Forgive me for that gossip. Forgive me for whatever sin that I've committed. And the moment we acknowledge that, we confess it, God forgives us. When we say, Lord, forgive us of these sins, He forgives us. That's a clear principle of Scripture. However, there's one more thing that goes along with it. And that is next phrase, and it's we forgive our debtors, as we forgive our debtors, there's one more thing that must accompany our confession and our request from God for forgiveness, and that is we must forgive those debtors. When you commit a sin against someone, it sort of puts a debt there. It's like somebody owing you money. And... As long as that money's owed, there seems to be a barrier there. You're trying to get rid of the barrier. Somehow the debt has to be paid. Jesus provides the basis for paying the debt for both of us. When we ask God to forgive us, God looks at the blood of Jesus and says the debt's been paid. When, he looks, when we look at the sin of another person committed against us and we see the blood of Jesus, we should consider the debt paid. Jesus paid it. It's history. It's toast. And we should forgive them. We should be able to walk up and put our arms around them and say, I love you. I really love you. I'm not just saying it. And then there's this caveat that is added after the prayer, but I'm putting it in here. And we read, For if you, verse 14, For if you do not forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father, or if you forgive men their trespasses or debts." Your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive men, do not forgive men their trespasses or debts. Neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you yours. That's the caveat. The fact that Jesus singles out this one point in the prayer to reemphasize after the prayer says this is a problem for most of us. And it is a problem. We are so adept at holding grudges, being angry, hating one another, being full of bitterness. We're so adapted that, that forgiveness is just almost foreign to our way of thinking. When somebody does us wrong, we're going to get back at them. And Jesus is saying, there's no place for that. There's no place for that. If you want to have an ongoing relationship with my father and your father, you've got to be a forgiving person, a really forgiving person. Otherwise, regard yourself as out of straits with your father. He'll always be your father, but you're not having a good relationship with him day by day. The barrier remains. The next thing, the fourth thing that he says, and lead us not into temptation. What are we praying for here? You know, this is the most difficult phrase in the, in the prayer. Have you ever thought about that? Lead us not into temptation. You know, Lord, are you in the business of leading people into temptation? That's what it sounds like. And yet in James 1 you read that the Lord tempts no man. So I don't understand this. What's going on here? Why should I pray? Lead us not into temptation. Does the Lord lead me me into temptation if I don't pray about it? This is a Latotes. And maybe you've heard me mention this before because it occurs a lot in the Bible in different places. A Latotes, let me just get a a note here that I think is on the screen above us. Latodis is a rhetorical device of understatement. Used in some languages in which a positive statement is intended by stating the opposite of its negative. And you say, I don't understand. It's, you've run that by too fast. Well, let's use some examples. That's not bad. What did I mean by that? That's good. You did a good job. The suit was sure no bargain. What's that mean? It was expensive. I will never forget the time we did such and such. What's that mean? I will always remember it. What you did was no small accomplishment. That means it was very, very good, very successful. If I said to you, it was not an inconsiderable sum of money, you'd say, oh, that cost a lot. If I said, she's no dummy, you would understand that I mean she's really smart. If I said he's no weakling, you'd understand that I meant he's really strong. These are all latotis. And the Bible is absolutely full of latotes. Because the Bible was written in the language of the people. Common language. The way we talk every day, we use latotes and we don't even realize it. Understatement to emphasize the positive. Listen to this. And these are famous passages. God says, My word shall not return unto me void. That's a latotis. It means my word will accomplish what I send it out to accomplish, what I purpose. Mark, Jesus, in Mark 9, Jesus says, the man who gives up all and follows me will by no means lose his reward. There was no danger of him actually losing a reward. If he's following Jesus, what he was trying to say is he will certainly receive a great reward, a wonderful reward. When he told the man, you are not far from the kingdom of God, he was actually saying you are close to the kingdom of God. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will in no way never drive away. Meaning, in the context it's clear, I will certainly receive him if he comes to me. It's like overstating it using the negative. Paul and Barnabas, the book of Acts is loaded with them. Paul and Barnabas, had says, had no small dissension and debate with them. Translated, they had a big fight. And here in the Lord's Prayer, we have a Latotes. And lead us not into temptation, meaning lead us out of any and all temptation. Steer us away from any desire, all desire and opportunity to sin. That's what we're to be praying for. And that's what he's saying. That's the exciting thing that God has put before us. Latotes. Haddon Robinson made this statement. I think mean, it's a very good one. He said, let's face it. We seldom want to be delivered from temptation. It promises too much fun. Song, Some y- wag has said, don't resist temptation. It may go away and not come back. Temptation stirs the blood and inflames the imagination. If we were revolted by it, it would not be temptation. Occasionally, we see where temptation will take us, and we may cry out for deliverance. Usually, though, temptation doesn't seem very bad, so we play with it, flirt with it, and invite it into our lives. And when we pray about our sins, it's not temptation that bothers us. It's the consequence of our disobedience that we want removed. The problem is we seldom want deliverance from temptation, and yet that's what we're to be praying about. Lord, deliver me from temptation. Deliver me from those situations where I will be tempted if I'm unable to deal with the temptation. You know me, Lord. You know what I'm prone to do and I'm who knows how many times the lord has protected me in my life where i could have easily fallen in to temptation and lost it big time lead us not into temptation lead us away from temptation and sin and moral failure and toward victory and success in the christian life that's what he's saying we should be praying for and then he adds and deliver us from the evil one from satan he is a real person, friends. He is described in the Bible as a roaring lion looking for somebody to eat up. I remember when i go to the zoo and the lions would roar. Woo! It was scary. But that's exactly what Satan is doing. He's roaring and he's looking for someone to devour. How to ruin your life. He wrote the book. You wonder, why do so many people seem to be so self-destructive? It's just like, how can I flush my toilet, my life down the toilet? And they've written the book on it. And you know who's working in their life? Satan is. He's just laying it all out in front of him, one temptation after another. We need to pray. Deliver us from the evil one who would want to tempt us to fail. How are we to pray so our prayers are received and delighted in in heaven? First, we need to focus on our Heavenly Father, our relationship, His heavenly position. His character, His coming kingdom, His will being done on earth. How are we to pray so our prayers are heard in heaven? Secondly, we need to focus on the Father's family, on our needs and the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, on forgiveness and our relationship with God and our relationship with each other, and on our victory over temptation, sin, and the forces of evil. That's what we're to do. But then lastly... Jesus adds one more thing. We need to send those prayers on their way to the Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, with a crescendo of praise and worship. A crescendo of praise and worship that makes it ever so clear that, God, we're counting on You. And we really believe that in the end, when it's all said and done and this life is ended on this earth, that it will just unfold into a a new opportunity, a new life, in which Your kingdom... And the answered prayer that you have powerfully answered in our lives and the the way that you have magnified your name will all come to a crescendo in eternity forever and ever. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's how we're to end it. Is it really worth all the effort to pray a prayer? Our Heavenly Father would delight to hear you know, it's a lot of work to pray. It's a lot of work to preach this message. It's gone longer than I thought it would. To go through this and really take the time to deal with it. And it's its a matter of, is it really worth it? Isn't it just better just to dump it out there and say, here, Lord, give me this? Or, "Or, Lord, I, I don't really need you? A little boy was playing in his sandbox with his trucks and cars. He was just having a good, good time and the dump truck had dumped a bunch of sand in the box, and and uh, he was building tunnels and he was roads and had everything. And all of a sudden, he came on this rock that was right in the middle of everything, big rock. And so the little boy, he was very little, five, six years old, he starts trying to get this rock out of the way, and he pushes it, and he rolls it, he gets it over to the corner of the of the of the sandbox, and he. He then is trying to get it up over the lip of the sandbox on the other side, get it out of the way. But it just he just couldn't do it. He got down with his his back and he pushed it with his hands. He tried to roll against it. He did everything he could with his feet. He worked with it for a good thirty minutes. And all this time the boy's father watched from the window as this drama unfolded. And he watched the boy working it. And Finally, he came out to the boy who just burst in tears eventually. He just couldn't figure out what to do. He couldn't get the rock out of the box. And the boy's father gently but firmly said to him, Son, why didn't you use all the strength that you had? He said, Dad, I used all the strength that I had. And he was sobbing away. I used all the strength that I had. And the father said, No, son, you didn't use all the strength that you had. You didn't ask me. You didn't ask me. And then he reached down, takes the stone out of the box, sets it outside of the box, and the boy went on to play. Friends, prayer is worth the effort in more ways than we could believe. Not only will it pay big dividends in this life, we can't begin to understand how many dividends it will pay in the life to come. Father, help us today as we Take to heart what you've given to us. May it encourage us. May it challenge us. May it instruct us in the way we should talk to you. And, Father, we do thank you that we can call you our Father, that Jesus died for us, and that when we believed in him, you gave us new life, eternal life, that we were born into your family. And, Father, we thank you for that gift and that all that you've asked of us is to believe, for we could offer nothing else. But simply to trust Him, we thank.